Wow, man, we could we just close up right now, just in the service right here. At, uh, we're not going to, but we could. What anxieties are you dealing with? What anxieties am I dealing with? How do we deal with them in light of this table? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, as we were finishing up our series on the Beatitudes, we were looking at that uh, culmination of the Beatitudes, the so what, talking about us being salt and light. And I told you the story of my son, Arlene's and my son, Joel, that we almost lost when he was two months old. And I told you basically more about the diagnosis that he was lacking salt, among other things, among other minerals, and as a result, almost died. And the point was salt's necessary for life. And several of you have asked me about it, so I'll tell you the rest of the story. And in this time, instead of dealing with the diagnosis side of it, it's really dealing with the personal side of it. And if you weren't here, here's the summation of kind of how it went about. Joel, when we were living here, I was a student at Reform Seminary and helping start a, a ministry called the Great Orlando Leadership Foundation. Joel was two months old, and Arlene took him in just for a normal checkup. She called me up. I could tell by her voice things were not okay. And then she shocked me by saying the doctor has said to, for you to meet us down at Arnold Palmer Children's Hospital. He doesn't even want to wait on an ambulance. He's going to follow Joel and me. I'm going to put him in the car seat and uh, he's going to follow us down there. So I headed right down there, walked in, arrived the same time they had. And this team of doctors was already waiting. Medical staff, they were amazing. But the reason they were all there is because the, a number of the levels in Joel's system as a two-month-old were way past what have should have been the cause of death for an adult. And most adults die long before the levels reach what they were in Joel as an infant. As an infant. They didn't know how he was still alive. And so they began hooking him up. We rushed him to the ICU immediately, hooked him up to all of these tubes and monitors. And this little guy that was normally a bubbly little smiling boy was fighting for his life. And these medical professionals were fighting for his life. And they didn't know the diagnosis. In fact, it took a couple of days. And I still remember, Arlene and I were talking about the, the nurse's station where all these doctors would gather around with their medical, big medical tomes, those huge books, trying to figure out, it was a very rare diagnosis. They ended up being transient pseudo-hypoaldosteronism. Big word, but bottom line, they didn't know that at the beginning. The fact, the first evening, the doctor met with Arlene and me and said, we do not know what the diagnosis is. We're still, all we know is what his levels are now. They are past uh, lethal. We don't know how he still lies. Our goal right now, we'll get to the diagnosis, but our goal is to enable him to make it through the night. Uh, man, I've, I've told that, this story twice now, and this is the third time this weekend, and every time it gets me, the, the, the piercing nature of those words, your son may or may not make it. Then, they said, we just, if you could, please, only one of you would be present in the, in the ICU room because there's just not enough space uh, with all the other medical staff. And 
So Arlene took the first watch, and I, this by now is about midnight, I went into the family waiting room, and I immediately just hit the floor, face down. What do you say? I didn't know what to say. Sometimes just groans are the best kind of praying and tears. And wrestled. The anxiety was almost paralyzing. Now, Arlene told me this morning, she says, make sure you tell him the rest of the story, because last night I didn't. Um, he made it through that night, and he's, he's a thriving young man now. That was two decades ago. We got a photo of him in a wedding party with a buddy of his. But our thoughts often will go back to that night, that night of immense anxiety. Now, God bless the Gideons. You know, they leave the Bibles in the hotel rooms, and there was a Gideon Bible in that waiting room. And I turned to Psalm 139. Now, I didn't walk in, don't, don't think, okay, he's a preacher, and the first thing he did, he went in and had a Bible study. Are you kidding me? I was face down. I was not in the Bible study mode. But later in the morning, about dawn, I saw that Bible, I opened it up. Because it's a, it's, it's a passage that talks about us when we're very young and how we're loved even then. And it's a passage of scripture that talks about anxiety. Test my anxious, know my anxious thoughts. So what do we do with our anxiety? This table has everything to do with how we grapple with our anxiety. But the reality is most of us don't go to that table first. We go to this table. Now you might be wondering, uh, what's on that table? Okay, thanks for asking. So. What's on this table is whatever you put on this table. And I'd like you to imagine putting whatever you're most likely to go to to deal with your anxiety. Sometimes it's, it's, it's good things like friends, family, we go to them. And that's great unless we go to them before we go, we go to this table and before we go to that one. Other stuff on here is not so wonderful. It could be alcohol or drugs or porn or food, just binge eating, or it could be Netflix, binge watching. could be shopping. You know, when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. Could be a set of golf clubs. <laughs> Saying, what's wrong with golf clubs? Nothing until, unless I go to this table before that table. So in your, in your mind, just put on this table whatever your go-to is to deal with anxiety. And also maybe have something anxiety producing in your mind that you're going through right now. Could be something, uh, 
dealing with your health or the health of somebody you love or maybe a job or that you don't have a job or some, something financial or emotional, relational conflict. Not sure what it is, but it's anxiety producing. And know that in the midst of that anxiety, there's a choice between two tables. And what does it look like to choose this table, this table that commemorates what Jesus did on the cross, not as a martyr, but as a savior and a substitute for us? Now we're in the midst of this series on the Psalms. Sean opened it up a couple of weeks ago, telling us a little bit about the Psalms and some of the types of Psalms that there are. Uh, last week, John Cortinas walked us through Psalm 23. And in this series, we're not gonna go through all the Psalms, it's 150 of them, so it'll take a while. But we'll come back to this periodically and every now and then we'll pick this back up and, and pick some other Psalms. But there's so many types of, of Psalms. Sean talked about Walter Brueggemann's uh, categorization of Psalms of orientation. And then there are psalms of disorientation or psalms of reorientation. There are different types of psalms or you can describe them in other ways as well. There's, there's psalms of praise. There's psalms of lament. There's psalms of thanksgiving. Let's bring the list up so that people can follow along. There's confidence psalms where the psalmist displays, declares his confidence in God or his trust in God's character. They're kingship psalms, the royal psalms as some Bible scholars will call them, acknowledging Christ as king. Wisdom psalms, it sound a lot like proverbs. Mystery psalms where the, the psalmist says, what's up? I don't understand. Anger, imprecatory psalms, where there's an outburst, really. The, the, and the list goes on and on. The, the bottom line is the, the psalms are very authentic for all seasons. By the way, the imprecatory, the anger psalms, even our psalm today, Psalm 139, has some of that in it. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, you can read on the screens. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, just go back to our Welcome Center. We'd love to give you one. Verse 17, I want you to see the man, the psalmist just takes this right turn. First, you hear him saying, verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. You know, you almost, there's that soothing there. You almost hear organ music in the background and then if only you God would slay the wicked what where does that come from away from me you are bloodthirsty they speak of you with evil intent your adversaries misuse your name do I not hate those who hate you Lord and abhor those who are in rebellion against you I have nothing but hatred for them I count them my enemies search me God and know my heart <laughs> Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The back and forth, you know what though? It's real. Anybody here stay in a calm mode all the time? No, you're praying, you're thinking through and then something else comes up, something. And, and notice that he takes his, his frustration not to those people but to God. That's the right thing to do, by the way. First go to him. The bottom line I want you to get from that is 
You can say anything to God. You think he, he doesn't already know? That's the posture of our heart. And saying anything will include grappling with the difficulty and the anxiety. By the way, sidebar here just for a moment. I'd encourage you maybe in a month read through all the Psalms. It'll take you five a day. You'd need to allow more time on the day you read Psalm 119, just warning you, because it's a really long psalm. But maybe go through the entire book and you'll start seeing all aspects of life dealt with. But this psalm is where I went because of those last phrases about my anxious thoughts. I, I, my anxiety is before you. And this psalm gave words to me. So how do we deal with our anxiety in light of this table instead of this one? We let David lead us. And he grappled with actually the opposite of the cause of our anxiety. Let me give you three causes of our anxiety. And what you see in the psalm is him taking the opposite approach. But the three causes, first, there are others, but these are three biggies. One cause of anxiety is a lack of intimacy. A lack of intimacy causes us anxiety because we have a yearning to be known and loved. And when we're not feeling known and loved, anxiety wells up within us in the midst of a particular situation. And being known and being loved is a deep ache of ours. We want to be known m most of the time. I love the story of the woman who came to a church for the first time, told the usher it was her first time there. He said, he started escorting her in down the aisle and he said, where would you like to sit? And she said, I'd like to sit on the front row. He said, oh ma'am, you don't want to sit on the front row. Our pastor is really boring and you'll get sleepy and everybody will watch you. Trust me, we've dealt with this before. She just interrupted and said, do you know who I am? He said, no, ma'am. She said, I'm the pastor's mother. <laughs> he said, do you know who I am? She said, no. He said, good. And he walked back up the aisle. <laughs> now, there are sometimes you don't want to be known, but in the midst of something that's anxiety producing, we want to be known. And a lack of intimacy in those moments is both cause for anxiety and it also accelerates our anxiety. Go back to the text and you'll see two theological realities pop out. Those are the the theology is for every day. It's not just for academicians and, and seminaries. And the, I'm gonna give you two big words. Some of you are very familiar with these words. Some of you might not have heard them before. One word is omniscience, meaning all-knowing. The other is omnipresence. And when we are getting to know God as he is, not the God just that we, we want, but the God who's revealed himself to us, we see him. He reveals himself as being all-knowing, omniscient, and all-present, omnipresent. And that comes out in this psalm. We yearn for intimacy. We yearn to be known. We yearn to be loved. And in Psalm 94, the psalmist says, you, I cast my anxiety. You're not going to let my foot slip because your unfailing love is, is holding on to me. So there's that notion of being loved in the midst of the anxiety. And on the floor of that waiting room, I came back in. It was like my second or third shift. Arlene and I had been shifting back and forth. 
I came to this, this psalm and had to grapple with either it's true or not. And where I go, I, I went is this table, and the backdrop of this table is the resurrection that validated that what Jesus said he was accomplishing on the cross, he actually accomplished. He said, I'm, I'm bridging the gap back between you and the Father, and therefore you can be known, you can be loved. So look, and you can be loved all the time by this all-knowing one. He's omniscient, verse 1 of, of Psalm 139. He says, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to obtain. It almost sounds like too good a news. As in Julian Barnes, an agnostic, wrote a book a couple of years ago about fear. And he says at the very beginning of his book, he says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. wishing he could believe that God really is here, which is why I go back to this table and then go to the resurrection. Did Jesus accomplish what he said he would? And because of that, I can know that I am loved, which is the yearning that we all have. Cheryl Crow, the musician, love her music. In an interview, she was real candid a few years ago. She says, I think everybody on the planet feels alone, even when they're in the greatest relationships or surrounded by family. She says, I, I, one of my greatest fears is being alone. I think that's true for all of us, which is why so many songs are written about this love. It's what motivates you and edifies you and encourages you. It's what brings you the most joy and the most wisdom. So that's what I long for, the consummate love. And David is modeling something for you and me, saying, I'm loved, I'm known, I'm companioned in the midst of this, and I'm companioned by one who is all-knowing. That's so important that his wisdom is there, he's all-knowing. God's knowledge, you need to understand something, he has a learning disability, God does. Actually, it's a learning inability. What do I mean by that? He doesn't learn. He doesn't need to. Having a high view of God is acknowledging the God who is, and the God who is is all-knowing. His knowledge is innate. It's not acquired. His knowledge is simultaneous. It's not successive. He doesn't learn this and then learn this or see this. It's all at one time. So two days after you were born is just as fresh to God in his knowledge as right now, and it's two days before you die and the day you die. All of our lives, all of you say, man, that is huge. It's hard for me to understand that. How about what David says? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. His knowledge is infinite. It's not partial. It's immutable. It never changes. He doesn't, uh, change, he, he, he doesn't shift and say, hmm, never thought about that before. His knowledge is infallible. There are no mistakes. And so when I was on the floor of that waiting room, the significance of this table is that I was known. The assurance that I have been restored to the one who knows every aspect of this situation. Not, I'm not going to understand it all, but he knows. Jeremiah. 
Let me, let me, let me, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? A huge reality in my anxiety is relating with the one who knows. I was sitting in a friend's office one time, leads a company, had a plaque over to the side. You guys know the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know? I learned that. The plaque said, Jesus knows me, this I love. I said, tell me about that. He said, every decision I come across, knowing that he knows me is something that's precious to me. But it's not just his omniscience. You're saying somebody who would know me that well and know all of us that well at the same time would have to be everywhere, yes. Which is why his omnipresence is part of this equation as well. That's why David addresses that. Not, not just that he's all-knowing, but that he's all-present. He's present everywhere. Go back to the text. Verse seven. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now I want you to frame this for, for just a second. To some people, that's a little freaky. Man, you serious? It's like the burglar who broke into the house he thought was empty, it was pitch black dark, he's pilfering it. He's got his flashlight right here and he's putting in all the jewelry and stuff and out of the darkness, somewhere behind him comes this voice saying, Jesus is watching you. <laughs> he turns, looks, there's nobody there. He thinks, maybe I imagined it. He doesn't move for about another five minutes. And okay, I guess the coast is clear. That must have been my imagination. He goes back to loading more stuff up. And pretty quickly, the voice comes back. Jesus is watching you. He turns around this time. He was ready. And he goes to the direction where the voice is coming. It was, at a, it was a parrot. And he said, did you say that? The parrot said, yes. Who are you? And the parrot said, Moses. <laughs> the guy said, what kind of an idiot names his parrot Moses? The parrot said, the same kind of idiot that names his Rottweiler Jesus. And Jesus is watching you. Now, <laughs> without this table, the knowledge that Jesus is watching me all the time is overwhelming. Without God's grace and without his mercy. But because of that table, the fact that Jesus is watching me isn't disconcerting, it's affirming, it's comforting. And there's, that's where David is. He says, verse seven, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Whatever you're dealing with, he's here now. 
His presence is, is not partial, it's full. In other words, it's not where some people are at God's wrist and other people are at his elbow and he just encompasses the whole earth and so you get part of him. No, the power of the way he reveals himself is that he is wholly present everywhere, but he is not in everything. That's pantheism. But this knowledge is too wonderful as that God in his entirety is with you right now in whatever you're dealing with, and it's with you, and it's with you, and it's with you, and it's with me. He is here. That's why the power of the name Emmanuel is, is so significant in the midst of what we're dealing with because Emmanuel means what? God with us. And Jesus says, I assure you that God is with you. And he's with you not to condemn, but to redeem to enable. It says through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 23, verse 23, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth? I don't know what you're dealing with, but I can assure you in the name of Jesus, because of that table, He's with you, which is why Paul then brings that up in Philippians chapter four, verse five, the Lord is near. As a result, do not be anxious about anything. You don't have to be in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That's what John brought up last week in Psalm 23, verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and again, that's not just at a funeral home or at a memorial service. All of this world is the valley of the shadow of death. We're brought out of death into life when we come to Christ. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, and he makes us alive. But every day, we're navigating through the valley of the shadow of death, and even though we are walking through it, we need not fear any evil. Why? Because you're with me. And Jesus says, you can take that to the bank. I'm paying the price for God to, you to be restored into the holy presence of the Father. And he will not leave or forsake you, nor will I. So it's a lack of intimacy that will be a, 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 an anxiety producer. And you can see David modeling the opposite of that, which is how his anxiousness is being dealt with. Let me give you a couple others. Uh, another cause of anxiety is a lack of purpose. Because we've got a yearning to live as men and women who are created or men and women who are purpose, uh, men and women who have, have a purpose to fulfill. And a lot of times when we lose sight of that purpose and it causes this great anxiety, there's a story of the priest and during the age of the czars in Russia and he was approaching one of the czar's castles and the, at night it was dark and out of the darkness one of the guard yells out to the priest, stop right there. And then he says, who are you and why are you here? And the priest answered and then was allowed entrance and when he was with the guard, he said, I don't know what your salary is, but I will pay you double whatever you make if you will accompany me for the rest of my life and on a daily basis ask me those two questions every day. Who are you and why are you here? Because those are centering questions. They haunt us without this table. But with this table, with the work of Christ, 
we're assured, A, we have been created for a purpose. Go back to the text. And I want you to see the first three words of verse 13. For you created. I want you to read those three words. Let's say them all together. Ready? One, two, three. For you created. That's not a shoulder shrugger. There's immense power in those three words. Because if I create something, I'm creating it for a purpose. There's a reason, there's an intentionality. And what David is acknowledging is, I've been intentionally made, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. If I praise you because, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Powerful David is saying, I, I was created for purpose. Read about a, a survey last year of 18 to 24 year olds. It's regarding purpose in the, in the marketplace. And the report came to the conclusion that those 18 to 24 year olds say that having a clear purpose in life is a big part they perceive of being a real adult. There's wisdom in that. But there's a problem. A, they didn't see a lot of purpose in many of the adults. And in terms of the numbers for them, only 43% said they had a clear picture of what they want in life. And here's, here's, the, here's a biggie. Only 30% said they know why they're here. There's a consequence to living in a secularized society that says you and I are simply cosmic accidents. You're lucky mud. You just happened. So did you. And by the way, when you die, you're just, it's oblivion, nothingness. Oh, but in between, come up with a purpose. Camus, the French existential philosopher, you've heard me tell you before, he didn't believe in God, and he said, the, but the logical conclusion to that is that you've got two choices, either just quit living, end your life, or authenticate your existence. In other words, make up a purpose. But he said, I'll warn you, you'll be like the Greek uh, mythological character Sisyphus who pushed the boulder up the hill and every time he got it up there, he'd walk away and it would fall back down. You try to make up your own purpose, you'll have to be recreating it over and over. And there is power in those three words that you, you, you said. There's also power in the first five words of the Bible. What are the first five words of the Bible? In the beginning, God created. And if I'm created, if you are created, there is purpose there. We are purposed. There's an intentionality. He says, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? Psalm 138, verse seven. 
Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. So David says, you know what? In the midst of anxiety, I want to reorient my understanding of the intimacy that I can have with God, that I'm known and loved. I want to reorient my life to that I'm a person of purpose. And even though I don't understand everything, there's intentionality about God's agenda in this universe. And we might not understand why little boys are wired up and, and others do not make it. We, we can't answer all of those questions. But if God did create the heavens and the earth and he is redeeming and restoring, we can trust that in the process. There's a third cause of anxiety and it's a biggie, it's a lack of security. When we're in the midst of anxiousness, it's because we don't feel secure. And to go to this table instead of this table is not only a matter of embracing the reality that I'm known and loved, embracing the reality that I'm created and I'm purposed, but it's embracing the reality that I am cared for and I am a led person, that God is in charge. He cares for me and he wants to lead me in the midst of that care. Go back to the text. Verse 16, he says, your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I'm still with you. He says, you've got me. Go down a little bit further. Go back a little bit further to verse five. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to obtain. The Hebrew word for him, me in there means to enclose. You know what that means? It means God's saying, whatever you're dealing with right now, he says, I've got you. I've hemmed you in. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm enclosing you. Which is why the psalm concludes the way that it does in verse 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. God, I give you my anxious thoughts. Anxious thoughts that can be paralyzing. Our lack of security causes us to move from thriving to surviving because we're just not sure of the next step. With my boys, when we would rock climb, and when they were little, teaching them to rock climb, they would scamper when it's free climbing just but it, until about two feet above the ground, and then they start getting a little bit more tentative. But man, when I'm belaying them, and I've got a rope, and they're attached to it, and they can know whatever happens, dad's got me, they're scampering and taking, taking uh, uh, sometimes too much risk. But they knew they were secure. Back on the Golden Gate Bridge out in San Francisco, it was built in 1937. It was, cost $77 million, an astronomical fee back in those days. And the project had two phases. The first phase went really slow. The second phase 
went quite rapidly. The difference between the two is this. In the first phase, work began to get slower and slower and slower because men were falling to their deaths. 23 workers fell to their death. And every time the rest of the workforce would watch one of their companions fall to their death, guess what happened? They would get more tentative. They would get more afraid. They, they wouldn't be able to work as quickly. They're making mistakes. And then finally, somebody who had suggested at the beginning and had been rebuffed because of the expense brought it up again and they went with it. They spent $100,000 and built the largest net in the world, put it under the workers. First worker fell, was caught by a net. Ten other, nine others fell, all were caught and saved by the net. Guess what happened to the work? It, 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 it shot forward in terms of efficiency. In fact, they got it done 25% faster than they thought. What was the difference? They knew there was a net. They knew that they were secure. And what the gospel, what this table, what this might enable me to do is survive, maybe kill the pain. This table enables me to live, to live with freedom, to embrace every day, knowing I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, but there's a net. He's got me. I don't have a lack of intimacy. I don't have a lack of purpose, and I don't have a lack of security. And so as a result, this is not some religious ritual to just say, hey, I did it in church. We're going off and moving. This is what enables you and me to face life in a fallen world and see our anxieties crumble in the presence of his enoughness, his love, his security, his calling, his comfort, and his care. And so as a result, that's, yeah, that's, so that's why the gospel is good news. I want you to stand before we leave. We're going to make a proclamation together that we're no longer slaves to fear. And it's not because of some creative Jedi mind trick. It's because of the reality of this table. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have come. Thank you that, as Sean was talking about a couple of weeks ago, every psalm really is about you, Jesus. It's about what you want to restore us to. We can live authentically. We don't have to pretend that we're not having fear. We can own up to the fear, but then move past it because of the table. God, we confess to you the wrong table, the, all the stuff that we, we tend to go to with our anxiety. We lay that at your feet. We receive your forgiveness. And we reorient our lives right now as men and women who've been called to live not just as individuals, but as a community that is no longer in slavery to anxiety. So hear us right now, not just singing from our throats, but singing from our hearts.